Let me read the Scripture here. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Those words were never spoken, ever. 1,500 years of celebrating the Passover, nobody ever said that. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If you grew up in the church, you're, you're well accustomed to the Lord's Supper. For me, growing up in a, in a Lutheran church, it's something we did every other Sunday. Every other Sunday, you just knew. I think it was like even Sundays, you know, first, first and third Sunday, uh, no Lord's Supper, second and fourth. I don't know what we did on the fifth Sunday. You know, I wasn't paying attention like I have to pay attention now about such things. But I just, you know, it was like, is this a Lord's Supper Sunday or is it not a Lord's Supper Sunday? It's just something we did. And the meaning, I kind of understood what the meaning was. I just knew the service was going to be a little bit longer. And as you grow in faith, your appreciation of what you're doing and what these symbols mean and the significance is crucial. It's important. We're not to gloss over these things. When we start connecting the Lord's Supper back to the Passover and, and what, where those connections are, you realize you start to run into some, some difficulties trying to, to connect the two together. As we deepen in our faith and we study the Bible more deeply, it's human nature to look for a cohesive story. You know, when you're uncertain, maybe you go to the doctor, you have an illness, and you want the doctor to sit down with you and, and walk you through. How did this happen? What's going on that's wrong? I can't stand it when the doctor just tells you, take this pill, and they leave. Man, I want to I know... What is going on? What is wrong? How is this going to help? You know, when I find a good doctor and they know that I'm interested in these things and understand a little bit of medical terminology, then you get a good doctor and they'll talk to you like a human being. Yeah, which is nice, right? Yeah. But maybe when you're younger and you go into the doctor, you don't care. You just, you know, I don't feel well. Fix it. And young in your faith, that's kind of the way church is. You're, you're, you know, you come and you sing the songs and you understand the gospel and you're saved. And that the gospel is so simple, a three-year-old can understand it and get saved. And yet our faith shouldn't stop there. And the deeper you go into God's Word, the more robust your faith is, the deeper appreciation you have for who God is, what He's done, what our position is in Christ all these blessings we're going to receive in heaven that we're already receiving now. You should stop looking at passages of Scripture as one little verse you memorize and hang on your fridge and you divorce it from the meaning of the rest of the Bible. You can't do that as you grow in your faith. Each passage relates to its immediate context and, it, and then from there, that 
chapter in that book of the Bible, and then from there, that book of the Bible, and then all the books of the Bible go together. They must fit all together. And the deeper you go in theology, the more you're looking for a framework that helps explain all of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. Throughout the history of the church, two major systems or frameworks have kind of emerged. And last week I introduced you, maybe some of you the first time, to the terms covenant theology versus dispensationalism. And I don't want to just leave you hanging there with those terms. You may have left saying, look, this isn't that important to me. Trust me, it needs to be. Not in the sense that you need to be a seminary professor but in the sense that you need a way to interpret the whole of the Scripture. You will do this even if you don't know you're doing it. You have to find something to cling to. You have to find something to make sense of the whole Bible. You are built that way by God. And if you connect the dots incorrectly, the way you worship God, the way you do church, the way you think about the end times gets affected. So it is important. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. There are old covenants and a new covenant. There is Israel. There is the church. How do we connect all this together into one cohesive story? If you're a covenant theologian, you tend to connect them very closely. We call it continuity. Israel, church, Israel, church. It's hard to see where one ends and one begins. Before you know it, the church is Israel. So covenant theology at its extreme replaces Israel with the church completely. Dispensationalism is a system that tends to kind of compartmentalize different eras in redemptive history and say... God dealt with people during that time in a special way. Not to say that God saved people in different ways through history. It's just saying that, look, the way God called Abraham and then built the nation Israel is different than America. True? The way God interacts with you and with me through Christ is the same, but the way He's dealing with you individually looks a lot different than the way He's dealing with me. God is big enough to do this. So dispensationalism says, let's look at some broad categories in redemptive history where it looks like God's doing something uh, special, a little different there. And traditionally, dispensationalists point to seven dispensations in the Bible. Dispensationalists see a lot of discontinuity between the Old and the New, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Church, and Israel. Dispensationalism has dominated evangelicalism since the late 19th century, which is why most evangelicals today are more sympathetic to, um, to Israel as a nation because they're not saying that the church has replaced Israel. There's Israel, there's the church. The church is made of Gentile and Jews, but that doesn't mean God has said there's no more ethnic Israel. And 
He's like, well, where do you fall? Where do I fall? Where does Andy fall? Where does the church fall? Do I have to be one or the other? Do I have to relook at my membership? Do I? No, these, these things are not going to determine um, the core doctrines of, of the church. That is why covenant theologians and dispensationalists, they get along. R.C. Sproul, covenant theologian. Okay. Those, that's the big dispensational seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. So people like Lewis Sperry uh, Chafer, and uh, I'm trying to think of some other big disp guys. Um, John MacArthur's considered a leaky dispensationalist. So he's dispensational in his view of Israel, but he sure preaches a lot like a covenant theologian a lot of the times. And I like that. I like that. I think there's this kind of middle ground where a lot of guys can agree on a lot. And that's where we should be. Because the problem with dispensationalism when it goes too far is it sees discontinuity everywhere. Some dispensationalists would teach Sermon on the Mount, that's for Jews. We don't even need to teach that. Could you imagine me or Andy or Nathan skipping over Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and saying, that's not for us? You'd get up and leave. Or be very confused and the phone would be ringing off the hook Monday. The elders' phones would be ringing off the hook. So, however, covenant theology at its extreme would be like the Roman Catholic Church. The church is Israel. So the church needs priests, the church needs altars, the church needs the Holy of Holies. You need a mediator. You can't go to God directly. You need a mediator. Somewhere in the middle, there's, there's, uh, there's agreement. So are we going to baptize babies like the Presbyterian Church? No, but we're not going to break fellowship with them. Why do they baptize infants? Because to them... That's a sign that you're in the New Covenant community. It replaces circumcision, which is a good idea, you know. Um, But we don't baptize infants here. We're a Baptist church. We believe the Bible teaches believers' baptism for New Covenant believers, for the church. So just think covenant theology, continuity, the church is like Israel, dispensationalism, discontinuity, church, Israel, separate. But we all get saved the same way in either system by grace, through faith. That's why we can have agreement. That's why John MacArthur can go to a Legionnaire conference and preach at R.C. Sproul's conference, and R.C. Sproul can come out to Shepherd's conference and preach at... um, John MacArthur's conference. But he doesn't anymore because he's too old to fly. He doesn't like flying. So I hear he might be coming out at next year's conference, which would be pretty cool. Anyways, where do you fall? Well, if you interpret prophecy very literally, and where prophecy says this is going to happen to Israel, you're more dispensational. So, in that sense, this church is more dispensational. We believe that Israel is still a nation 
God still has promises he's made with him that he's going to fulfill and that the church has not absorbed those promises. And there will be a millennial kingdom, an actual millennial kingdom, and Israel will have a prominent role in that millennial kingdom. Israel has not faded away off the scene. In fact, just the other day I saw them on the news. (laughs) In fact, every day I see them on the news. So, not to be flippant, not to poke, you know, fun at covenantal friends. Again, I would probably say I'm very dispensationally covenantal. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's somewhere in between. But when it comes to prophecy, no covenant theologian would, would say that Israel has a prominent place in the future. In fact, many covenant theologians are amillennial. They don't see any millennial kingdom in the future. Because when they get to prophecy, they take a more figurative approach. So when they see the word Israel, they go, "Eh, it's probably the church. Let me tell you a little bit more about covenant theology, just so you can see where it came from and why it came about and what's the good and, and kind of the bad that goes with it. Last week, I put up this slide that shows that God initiated six covenants with Israel, and actually called them covenants and used the word covenant. Covenant theology makes up covenants that aren't actual covenants in the Bible. It looks like covenants, but we're just saying the word covenant is never used there. So it's strange that God would actually make covenants and call them covenants and say, I am making a covenant with you. And then for us to come in and say, well, God's got these other covenants that he doesn't call covenants, but they sure look like covenants. So that's one of the problems with covenant theology. So what are these other covenants that covenant theologians talk about? Modern covenant uh, theologians would probably say this. The first covenant ever made was a covenant in the Trinity, The three persons of the Godhead made a covenant with one another, and they call it the covenant of redemption. They agreed with one another to to redeem humanity before the foundations of the earth. Okay, maybe. Certainly they agreed to do that. I don't know if we would call it a covenant. Normally, a covenant's a promise, and there's, there's consequences for breaking the covenant. I can't see the Trinity breaking the covenant with one another. So, um, every time we come up with a plan or an agreement, I wouldn't necessarily call that a covenant. But, many New Covenant theologians would say there was a covenant of redemption before eternity passed. Go back a number of decades and covenant theologians would then say, no, 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 the first covenant ever was with Adam in the garden. And we'll call it the covenant of works. I will be your God and you will live forever as long as you don't eat from this tree. So there was like a covenant. If you break the covenant, how would you break the covenant? By eating from the tree. What would happen if you eat from the tree? You shall die separation with God. So they say, that's a covenant of works. It's a covenant of works because the only work Adam had to do 
was not eat from the tree. So it's not really a work. It's kind of an, an anti-work. There was nothing they had to do, only one thing they, they couldn't do. So they call that the covenant of works. And after Adam and Eve failed in that covenant, covenant Adam, being the representative of the whole human race, pretty much ruined the covenant of works for the rest of us. As our federal head, he, he represented the whole human race. He failed at that covenant, so the covenant's been broken for all of us. Therefore, we need a new covenant. Don't, don't confuse new covenant with the new covenant in the New Testament. We need a replacement covenant. We'll call it the covenant of grace. And every covenant since the covenant of works has been some form of a covenant of grace. Because if the covenant of works requires us to do the works perfectly, nobody's ever going to hold up their end of the bargain with God. So we need a covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant salvifically was a covenant of grace. We agree with the covenant theologians in that respect. However, there were immediate blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. So in that regard, the Mosaic Covenant was like a covenant of works. The problem was that Israel confused the covenant of works with the salvific part of the covenant. So they thought they had to do good works to be saved. And for some, that was a huge burden. Did I do enough good works? Did I, you know, and, it, and the law was a huge burden. For others, they said, yes, I've done enough good works to be saved. So it was a source of great pride and self-righteousness. Those were the, the Pharisees. But covenant theologians would say the Mosaic Covenant was never about getting saved by keeping works. Well, what does Paul say in the New Testament? He says no one was ever saved by works of the law. But that's where the dispensationalists of the covenant theologians kind of scratch their head and where the bulk of the scholarship is written and where it gets really kind of foggy was the Mosaic Covenant ever intended to be a covenant where if you worked, you could earn salvation? Well, technically, if you could, right, then you could earn salvation through there. But since no one could, for all practical purposes, the covenant with Moses wasn't going to save anyone. Yet Jesus came and he did keep the covenant of works he purchased our salvation with his perfect obedience. So he fulfilled the law perfectly. So as long as covenant theologians and dispensationalists agree that no one was ever saved by keeping the law, we're good. And that is really where, where the two camps agree and should agree and where we should focus most of our attention. So why does the rest of it matter? Well, the rest of it matters because it's going to determine how you do church, which we call ecclesiology, how you do church, and how you think of the end times eschatology. And those things are very, very important. So you want some kind of framework to be able to 
to put the whole Bible into. And my, my warning to you today is this. Where covenant theologians and dispensationalists get in trouble is when they let their framework interpret the Scripture. And the reason they do this is because sometimes the Scripture doesn't fit in neatly with either of the two systems. And in our own pride, and, and, and uh, boy, some of the scholarship's been rather ugly. Hasn't been of late, but I tell you, 30 or 40 years ago, the two camps were like fighting. Here's this whole world out here that needs to hear the gospel, and you have the covenant theologians and the dispensationalists writing some pretty ugly stuff about one another. That's what tends to happen if you spend too much time in the ivory tower. But it eventually trickles down into the church, and those attitudes trickle down into the church. I remember uh, Jacob Mendez telling me when he went out east, uh, the seminary out there was, was very, very, very dispensational. And uh, we're not ultra-dispensationalist here. In fact, we like a lot of covenant theologian uh, writings. Right? Andy, Andy loves R.C. Sproul. I, I like his writings, too. Al Mohler, who's now the president of the Southern Theological Seminary, is a covenant theologian. Although he sounds a lot like a dispensationalist. So that's why, that's why I like him. You know? he, he's got the blend. But Jacob went out there and he said a couple students kind of shunned him because some of his ideas sounded covenant theology. And he was like, whoa, where is this coming from? So you, if you've been at this church for any number of years, you have not been under that kind of, of teaching where it's you're either this or you're apostate. Yeah. It's human nature to want to take your system and elevate it above the Scripture we don't like it when things don't fit in neatly. But it's one of the things that I love about the Bible is God will not be crammed into a box. Every time I think I have this riddle solved, you know, I was talking to Nathan about this the other day, and he said, every time I think I have this whole covenant theology versus dispensational thing figured out, I lose it again. It's elusive. It's like God's like, here, now put that into your system. Oh, I don't know what to do with that. And when you, when you study the Bible honestly with a consistent hermeneutic, that's gonna, you're going to run into that. If you're going to change your hermeneutic every time you're stuck to make a passage fit into your system, that's where you're going to run into trouble. It's hard for us to hold things in tension where things seem paradoxical. And yet the Bible is, is filled with those. And they're not paradoxical to God at all. So we should expect that an almighty, sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent God would understand some things that we, that we don't. But there's enough cohesion for us to be able to look at a passage about the Lord's Supper and go, Oh, look at the Passover. Wow. Oh, 1,500 years of trying to keep a law that you can't keep. And now along comes Jesus and says, I fulfilled the law. There's so much depth and richness and aha. But then when you study more deeply, there are going to be a few details where you go, I don't know what category to put that into. It's okay. That's normal. That's natural. That keeps 
us cling to God and gives us a robust faith. If you had it all figured out, you wouldn't need faith. So this, this thing with Israel is pretty much the big dividing line between the two camps. And since we're not teaching from this pulpit at all that the church has replaced Israel in that way in the future, then most people would call us more dispensational here. But don't let anyone pigeonhole you as, you know, staunchly dispensationalist. Just say I'm a biblicist. Wherever the Bible takes me is where I'm going to go. The two systems have recently moved towards a good middle ground. That's a wonderful thing. You don't hear a lot of heated debate about this as much anymore. Except when it comes to Israel. So, here's what dispensationalism teaches about Israel. The At the New Covenant, the inauguration of the New Covenant, God's plan for Israel is still cooking on the back burner. He didn't take the pot off the stove. It's still cooking, but it's kind of on pause during the church age. And then in the Millennial Kingdom, all those promises God made to Israel that haven't been completely fulfilled yet will be fulfilled. So Israel will have a prominent role in the Millennial Kingdom. There will be a temple God will be glorified through Israel for keeping his promises to Israel. I like that because if Israel did such a horrible job keeping their end of the covenant, what makes you think we're going to do a good job keeping the new covenant? I'm glad God hasn't given up on Israel. And yet I do understand, as you understand, that because of Israel's apostasy, because they've rejected Messiah, life's been hard for Israel. Has it not? extremely hard. And yet, God is faithful. There's always been a remnant. God has a special love. He has a a word in the Hebrew for that kind of love. It's his chesed love. It's his choosing love. He chose to love Israel specially, and he's not just going to remove that because they didn't love him back the right way. I like that. That's the kind of love he has for us in Christ. I try to love my family with that kind of love, but because of my fallenness, there are days where you feel like, well, I don't want to love them right now. The way, you know. And they feel that way about me sometimes, too. And yet, at the end of the day, I'll always love my family with that kind of chesed love. I know there's been people who haven't. They've walked away from their family. I don't want to love these people anymore. It's sad. But God doesn't walk away from his people because they're not loving him the way God deserves to be loved. Amen? Praise God. So, covenant theology versus dispensationalism won't matter so much in regards to how we think about our salvation. It will matter how we think about our ecclesiology and our eschatology, how we do church, how we don't do church. Well, which one's older? And that's what people always want to know, like older's better. Augustine was really the father of covenant theology. I mean, Augustine's amazing. Let's, let's say that up front. He is a giant 
in the world of theology. We owe much to Augustine. And yet, he saw two covenants in the Bible. Just an old and a new. The old he called a covenant of works. The new he called a covenant of grace. He kept the categories very broad. And when you read his writings, you see where the Latin, the Western part of the church kind of ran with the replacement theology. Why did they do that? Augustine liked to interpret prophecy allegorically. He replaced the church Israel with the church. And that strain of thought went in the Western church and went deeper and deeper and deeper. When you get into medieval history, you know that part from history you don't really remember much about. You just know the church got darker and darker and darker. What the church started to say was when you start mixing up the church with the state, then you need people to obey laws. And a good way to get people to obey laws is kind of mix the church with the state and say, if you don't obey the law, God's going to be angry with you. So they saw the law as a good way to get people to obey, to be moral, to behave, to respect the authority of the state. Medieval theologians would say, God can't declare someone righteous if they're not actually righteous. That would be a lie. We agree with that. But what does Paul teach in the New Testament? How do we get a righteousness? What's he say in Romans? A righteousness not our own. It's an alien righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith. The medieval church theologian said, no, 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 in order to be righteous, you actually need some righteousness. Therefore, do these things and righteousness will will come into you, especially if you eat the actual body and blood of Christ, which is where the transubstantiation came from. That's actual righteousness. If you could actually get Jesus' body and blood, now you have his righteousness inside of you. Without being disrespectful, I would say, I'm getting back in line. Give me more than one cracker. Uh, I want as much of Christ as I can get. So, well, no, you can only go through the line once. Why, Why not? If that's how you get Christ's righteousness, why not take the Lord's Supper every day, every minute? Why not carry it around in a little lunch pail? So, well, now you're getting irreverent and sacrilegious. No, I'm just asking legitimate questions. As much as I love Luther's writing as a reformer, sometimes when he'd get cornered in an argument like that, he would revert to just jokes and ad hominem attacks. Man, if you can't understand this, then get out of here. That kind of thing. So I love Luther. Love that he brought justification by faith, faith alone in Christ alone, sola scriptura. All those things are great. But the reformers kept the whole replacement theology in place. Luther was very anti-Semitic, wanted to remove portions of the Bible that were too Jewish, called James the Epistle of Straw, and um, Calvin uh, had not-so-nice things to say about Jews. They got what they deserved. They're apostates. 
So when people ask if I'm a Calvinist, not that part of what he taught. Are you still Lutheran? Not completely. I'm a Biblicist. I'm going to go where the Scriptures take me using a consistent hermeneutic, and sometimes that's going to make me look like this guy or this guy or this guy. But I would reject trying to be pigeonholed into who do you follow. And Paul covered that in 1 Corinthians. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Jesus. Well, yes, we all follow Jesus. But we need good teachers and know who your teachers are and what hermeneutic they're using. Don't just take at face value everything your teacher says uh, here, here at church. Have the Bible open and, and show me. How, you know, how did you get that? So when you, when you look prior to the Reformation, you've got the church now with a priest and an altar and a holy of holies. And if you want to approach God, you have to approach Him through a mediator. Everything looked like Israel because their covenant theology had taken them so far as to say the new covenant is just like the old covenant. You've got to have the priestly system. You have to have the altar. You have to have the sacrifice And we, we would say, no, no. That's, that's not what the Bible is, is teaching us. So let me use the book of Hebrews in our remaining time here to help you bridge the gap between the Old Testament and the New, the Old Covenant and the New. The book of Hebrews was written to Jews who were spread out due to persecution. We call it the diaspora. They've been distributed out. And so it's a letter that was supposed to go to all the Jewish churches. Paul was, was busy trying to preach to the Gentiles and bring the Gentiles and Jews together. In a lot of his letters, you see him bringing those two groups together. And you might say, well, the best way to keep them, to bring those two groups together is stop referring to them as separate entities. But that's another clue to me that God has something separate going on for Israel and the Gentile church, but the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. That tells me that the Jews are not being erased as a people and that we're all Gentiles now. God still has a special role for Israel. So this writer wants to tell the Jews who are now Christians why they shouldn't go back to the Old Covenant. When things get tough, the saying goes, we all run home to Mama. Right? And often that means our old habits, our old way of doing things. And so the church is being persecuted, not just from the outside, but from the inside by Judaizers. People who are telling them, look, you've you got to keep the Mosaic Law.
So he wants to tell them why the new covenant is better than the old. So here's seven aspects of the old covenant, and then we'll show you why the new covenant is better, more better. Yeah. And this will kind of be my thesis here. The, the new replaces the old during the church age because Christ fulfilled the old, but some aspects of the old will return for Israel in the millennial kingdom. But we're in the church age right now. So should we just stop reading about the old covenant and ignore it? No, because it points to the new covenant. The good news is we don't have to try to keep the Mosaic law. Certainly not for our salvation. But you don't just abandon the Mosaic law and say, hey, that's old, that's Israel, God's done with that program, we got something completely new. I'm trying to give you a way to blend the two. So the Old Covenant promised God's people rest in the land. That was a specific promise to Israel. To Abraham, you're going to get a land. You're going to go into the land. And you're going to experience rest. The problem was, once they got into the land, there were people already there. The Canaanites. Has Israel ever completely enjoyed rest in the land? What do you think? No. Emphatic no. So that was one one element of the Old Covenant. Number two, the high priest had to make sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, where it was believed that God's glory kind of rested between the two angels on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a big day for the people. Big day, the Day of Atonement. Number three, the Mosaic Law was supposed to produce good works. The Mosaic Law was supposed to produce good works. God's people was supposed to show the nations how holy God is by their behavior. So it was supposed to produce good works. Number four, the Israelites had hope that obedience to the Mosaic Law would result in the blessings of God. Part of the Old Covenant was, if you do these things, there will be blessings. If you don't do these things, there will be curses. So there was an expectation of reward, blessing for doing good works. Number five, part of the Old Covenant was a whole line of priests for making ongoing atonement so you didn't have to wait once a year for the Day of Atonement. You could come and bring your sacrifices all the time. And the priest would intercede for you. So there was a huge priestly system, a whole tribe designated. Big staff. (laughs) Number six, the Old Covenant included the Mosaic Law, which was intended to be a blessing to Israel. So the law was supposed to bless Israel um, because it would keep order in their society. They don't want a lawless society. The writers of the Old Testament would say, what a law, what other people have a law like this? It was supposed to point to God's attributes, His character. 
And the fact that God would make a special covenant with these people and with no one else was supposed to be great blessing for Israel. And then another aspect of the Old Covenant, though, was that endless sacrifices were required. Every time you made sacrifice for sin, you weren't even back out on the road before you sinned again. But God set up the system such that there were many ways you could bring a sacrifice for sin. Many different offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. So the writer of Hebrews goes through those seven aspects and he says, we have a better rest in the new covenant. We still get rest, it's just a better rest. See how it's not getting rid of the old but it's not really replacing the old with, with something else. There's enough difference between the two that you don't replace Israel with the church, but there's enough continuity between the two that you don't go the route of hardcore dispensationalism where you just say, look, we don't even need to, to, to read the old anymore. So there's, there's rest in the new covenant. It's just it's a better rest. There's, there's a high priest. It's a better high priest. There's works, but they're better works. There's hope, but a better hope. There's a priestly ministry, it's just a better priestly ministry. You only need one priest, Jesus. And now all of us are a kingdom of priests. It's a better covenant and a a better sacrifice. If you email me at brentatcountryoaks.org, I will link my notes to you. We're going to go through fast, and if you're a note taker, you're going to be frustrated. And I'm going to I'm going to do some paraphrasing here. But let's start with this first one: a better rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time. Just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. What's he saying here? Saying in the old covenant, when you entered the land, you would get rest. Remember the spies who wanted to enter the land and there were other spies who didn't and they convinced the people not to enter God's rest. So there's a reference there. There's also a reference here to David writing in the Psalms after Israel's gone into the land, after David's defeated all their enemies, David is still writing Psalms about rest because they hadn't experienced it yet. True rest isn't just the absence of enemies. There's so much I need rest from. How about you? I'm not just talking about our busy week. We long for heaven because we long for sin to be completely eradicated. Not having to worry about sin anymore. Not having to deal with your own sin nature. Not having to deal with your own covetousness. Not having to deal with your your own lack of faith your lack of love. 
And so there's a call here. It's really a call to salvation when he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The new covenant rest is better than the old covenant. And he's pointing to those who refused to go into the land because they were afraid. And he's saying, don't be like them. Make sure you enter this rest because this rest is eternal. This one's for keeps. But he's saying to those who've already believed, you've got a better rest coming. I know you're being persecuted. But there's a better rest coming. God didn't promise perfect rest here on earth. There will be perfect rest in heaven. And because that's been guaranteed for us by Christ, through Christ, you can enjoy your rest now. Right? You can get a little taste of it now, a little taste of heaven now. It's secure for us. It's done. So we can grab hold of that truth and say, I can rest now knowing that I get to rest perfectly soon. Soon. As Paul says, this momentary light affliction, nothing compared to the glories of heaven. A better high priest. Therefore, since we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The problem, one of the problems with the priestly system was that there was um, abuse of the system, as there is today. You put all that faith in an earthly priest, and he's, he has his own sin nature, and yet we have a better high priest one without sin, yet that doesn't mean he can't sympathize with us because he was fully human and tempted in every way we are except without sin. We get the best of both worlds in our our high priest. He can sympathize with us because he's human, but we don't have to worry about him messing up the sacrifice or going into the Holy of Holies with impure motives. Did you know that in the Catholic Church they teach that if the priest doesn't say the Mass with pure motives, then it doesn't count? And so you're just eating crackers and drinking wine? How's any man supposed to do with pure motives? And what's that going to do to a priest? That's got to go right to your head. Oh, look at me. I I can offer up the Mass with pure motives, with clean hands and a pure heart. You want leaders in the church who are suspicious of their own hearts before yours. That's who you want to be your pastors and your elders and your leaders. Men who understand their own sin nature and ask one another, pray for me, keep me accountable, tell me if you see anything I don't see. You don't want a perfect guy up here. You don't want a a rank sinner quenching the spirit either. That's a disqualifier. No perfect pastors. We have a great high priest who's perfect. A better harvest of works. In Hebrews 6, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. By better things, he means better works. Look, the works that they offered up to God in the Old Covenant, 
The problem with those works were they were done with impure motives, they were done often leading to self-righteousness, or they were done as burdensome duty. Oh, got to keep, i got to do works. i got to... Under the new covenant, because God writes the law in our heart and gives us the power to want to keep His word and obey His commands, and gives us the power to obey His commands, He says we are convinced of better things that accompany your salvation. At this point in the book of Hebrews, the author switches over to speaking directly to believers. I would say comparing what we read about in the Old Covenant and what we see in the New Covenant, not that, not that we're perfect today, but look what the church has been able to do under the New Covenant. To take the gospel to all the world, to build hospitals, to take care of the poor and the sick and the elderly and, and the weak. And You see Israel doing a little bit of this, but not to the scale and magnitude that the New Covenant Church has been able to do. In the Old Covenant, you see Jonah the prophet not wanting to go preach good news to his enemies. In the New Covenant Church, people go overseas to our enemies and risk their life to bring the good news. They have to. Not because they have to. I just got to go do this. I'm so filled with love for God, I got to go tell people. Hebrews 7 says we have a better hope. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Key in on that phrase, we draw near to God. And you know what? When you read about the Old Covenant, did anybody draw near to God in the Old Covenant? They're afraid to get close to God. And yet perfect love casts out all fear now because we know we're justified in Christ and we don't have to worry about our justification. That all that wrath we deserved was poured out on Christ on the cross. We can now draw near to God. Call Him Abba, Father, Daddy. Better hope. Oh, there was hope in the Old Covenant. But it was a tenuous, I'm not sure if this is going to happen kind of hope. In the New Covenant, Jesus says, it is finished. We have a better hope. Hebrews 8, a better priestly ministry. Remember, Old Covenant people, their whole life was all surrounded by the whole priestly ministry. All day long, all week long, the the priests... There's the temple. It's the focal point in Jerusalem. Everything you did was about the law and keeping the law. And I know I can't keep the law, so now I need sacrifices. So make sure I've got my sacrifices ready to go to the temple. This whole system was such a way of life. But he says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. 
But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. You know why? Because the old priests had to keep making sacrifice all the time. They never sat down. The fact that Jesus made sacrifice and sat down because his work of atoning for sin is done, now what is his priestly ministry about? Interceding for us. Empowering us. He's not spending all of his time making endless sacrifice. That's what the whole priestly system was for. What if you wanted to come and talk to your pastor and I said, I can't, I'm making sacrifice for you. Well, when will that end? (laughs) When you stop sinning. No time to move on and do other things. We've got to keep this sacrificial system going. It was an important ministry because it was the only way for people to have any assurance that there was atonement for sin. But now we have a better ministry from our high priest. One sacrifice, done, it is finished, sat down at the right hand of God, interceding for the saints. You can go directly to Jesus with your concerns, your prayers. He's your helper. He's your friend. A better covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, I just want you to underline that if you write in your Bible. All right, if the church replaced Israel, then why is God saying, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel? If you're going to replace Israel with the word church there, then you've got to replace Israel with the church throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament, which means we've got a lot of curses and punishment coming our way. Certainly the new covenant was for Israel, and it's for us. But these words specifically say, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, we'll know what's right and wrong, and He will empower us by His Spirit to want to obey. And then finally, the writer says we have a better sacrifice. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The confusion with the Old Covenant was they thought that keeping the Old Covenant, keeping the Mosaic Law, led to justification and sanctification. It never was able to justify anyone. And because you don't know that you're justified or that you've done enough good works, it's not a very good sanctifying machine either. When, When a 
JW comes to your, your door, Jehovah Witness, you start talking to them. They don't know if they're saved. They don't know if they've done a good, enough good works. And they have a big smile on their face and they're happy and they're trying to be winsome. I was talking to Nathan about this and he says, get talking to him for a little while and pretty soon the frustration and the anger will come out. I mean, don't provoke them, but you can ask them, look, if there's only 144,000 going to heaven, then, then why are you trying to get me and I'm going to take your spot, you know? And what about the guy next to you? Aren't you in competition here? Who knocked on the door? Who's getting credit for this one? You know, you don't want to be rude to them, but these are the natural questions that follow. Are you doing these good works out of love for God for what He's done for you? Or are you trying to earn His love? Anytime you're trying to earn, either you will get puffed up with pride or you will get tired of trying to earn God's love. Like a child who can never win his parents' affection. They just get tired and exasperated and I quit. There's no pleasing in this guy. Or the other kid who just thinks he's perfect. Because my mama tells me all the time I'm such a good kid. You know? That kid's annoying. <laughs> that kid. He doesn't think he needs the gospel because by the time he becomes an adult. Why do I need it? I've been perfect. Or at least better than the next guy. You know, at the end of our passage today, it says after taking the Last Supper, they sang a hymn and then went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, oh, I wonder what hymn they sang. Oh, we know what hymn they sang. Because they sang certain psalms during the Passover meal. And the last one that they would sing is Psalm 118. It's a very long psalm. I won't read it to you. You should go home and read it this week. But do you want to know what's fascinating? At the end of the psalm is that passage that says, you know, I will read that part to you. That would be a good place to end. Let me go to Psalm 118 if you want to go there too. This is the last psalm they would sing at the end of the Passover. Talk about the psalm taking on new meaning in the New Covenant. At the end of Psalm 118, verse 21, I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Wow. It's not like Jesus said, let's sing Psalm 118. People have been singing that psalm to end the Lord's Supper for hundreds of years. And that prophecy was about to be fulfilled. Jesus spoke that psalm one week earlier to the Pharisees when he told them the parable of the vineyard owner and the son coming to the vineyard and then killing the son. Incredible. So what's the application then? I'll just read what the writer of Hebrews used as his application. It's his sermon. It's God's sermon. Here's the application Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. You can draw near to God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can draw near to God because He's not angry with you anymore. He took it all out on Christ if you put your faith in Christ. And then let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful in the wake of persecution or even ridicule or whatever you're afraid of. You don't have to be embarrassed by your faith. You can hold fast your confession. This church was under intense persecution, quite the temptation to say, well, maybe I'll live a bit longer on this planet if I don't profess Christ. Don't do that. A few extra days on this earth to forfeit eternity with God. Hold fast to your confession. And finally, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love in good deeds. So we don't have to stimulate each other to say, you better do good works so you can get saved. You better do good works so God won't be embarrassed by you. We don't have to tell our children, do good works so people think I'm a good parent. We do that, you know. We don't mean to say it, but we say it. Our kids pick up on it. We can say, do good works because God's already done the hardest work for you. Oh, how can I say thank you to God? Do His works. Knowing you don't have to do them perfectly to earn His favor. You have His favor. And don't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. Thank you for being in church this morning. Not meaning the people who aren't here are forsaking the assembly. By forsaking the assembly, it's, oh, I don't need to go to church. I, 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 don't, I don't need to. No, God's designed the body of Christ for us to build one another up. We need each other. But encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that um, the theology gets too deep for us. And help us to understand that's a good thing, that there's no end of you, that theology is a study of you, that you're infinite, and our intellect is tiny compared to your great wisdom. Thank you that you've given us enough ability and enlightenment through the Holy Spirit to see what you're doing, what you have done, and how it fits together. Enough for us to understand that we cannot earn our way to heaven, and so we throw ourselves completely at your mercy. And you've given us enough for us to be able to be pleasing to you, not to earn salvation, but pleasing to you 
Like a father or mother is pleased with their children who obey and, and do good. Thank you, Lord, for this assembly here at Country Oaks. For the good, sound, biblical doctrine you've brought here over the years. That there aren't unnecessary divisions here over minutiae but that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has been the foundation of this church from the beginning. May it always be that way, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.